0: Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Aurora Energy Research Podcast. What you're about to hear is part of a collection entitled Aurora on COVID-19 implications. This session is entitled The Impact of COVID-19 on the Power Sector from a Legal Perspective. In this instance, Anthony Skinner, partner in the project practice at Ashurst, is interviewed by John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive.
1: Welcome to the third installment of Aurora's podcast series titled Aurora on COVID-19. I'm John Federson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora, and I'll be hosting the discussion today. Now, the series comprises one-on-one interviews with industry leaders on the impact of COVID-19. And in recent episodes, uh, which you can catch up on, on Aurora's uh, official podcast channel, were the investor perspective with Richard Norse from Greencoat Capital and the project finance perspective with Alejandro Theruelos from Santander. This week, we're going to be engaging with the legal perspective and I'm delighted to be speaking with Anthony Skinner. Anthony's a partner in the project's practice at Ashurst. Uh, His focus is on both renewables and thermal on equity and debt, uh, and he has a distinguished career where he's been uh, been prolific in terms of the number of transactions he's focused on, and he's worked with many of the key players, including names, uh, leading names like Light Source, BP, Bluefield, uh, and indeed Santander on the Project for Nights side. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, right, John. Thank you. Anthony, I'd like to start. By focusing on the short-term impacts of COVID-19, so on the commercial side, how are you seeing COVID-19's impact on processes around equity uh, and debt raising?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's it is important to distinguish the stages of the processes and um, let's distinguish between equity and debt. So, from a from an equity perspective, you know, I think very much so that the processes which were already ongoing or nearing signing or close uh, when COVID started, for the most part, have have continued. And and we have closed deals during this period. Um, It's fair to say that things perhaps move more more slowly. And and there's obviously a a few more complexities along the way. And signing, for example, is proving more challenging. Um, But generally, those those processes have continued and, and continue um, we've seen a bit of temptation from some buyers to try and uh, for a price chip, um, but generally people that are sticking to the deals. Um, whereas I think you have got new processes that are looking to start. There is some nervousness right now as to, you know, is it a proper market? Do you want to launch right now? Can you actually run a, a proper process? You know, can you host management presentations? What about site visits? You know, we're seeing people having to think outside the box, and and some people are using drone technology right now for for site visits. Wow. Um, we're working we're working on one process where um, the the buyer generally, as a sort of credit requirement, has to do a, their own site visit, which they're just not able to do. So they had to find a local sort of technical advisor to do to go and do a site visit on their behalf. Um, so yeah, generally, you know, say so it's say it's, for for the processes which we're signing, uh, they're carrying on, but new processes are a little bit more challenging. Um, I mean, interestingly, I think on the sales side, uh, the, the the sellers still seem to have a uh, um, price expectations unaffected by by COVID, um, whereas you know, I think the buyers perhaps are starting to to factor in sort of COVID risk into their into their price. So yep. we are starting to see a bit of a disconnect between sell side expectations and, and buyers' willingness um we we we're t- tending not to see uh the sort of max style clauses um in in spas yet to 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 allow for sort of covid walk away rights um mm-hmm. but it's certainly something that the people are beginning to to think about um so i mean that's that's the on the equity side and and, and the debt and side. Just, sorry,
1: just to be clear, just for the lay people out there, you talked about a max style clause for uh, COVID walker wear rights. Is that is that if if a certain thing in the future happens, if the lockdown continues for a certain period of time, then it changes the nature of the agreement or or something along those lines?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, material adverse change. If if you've got a split signing and completion in your SPA. Um, you might have a clause that says, you know, if if this goes on longer or is more severe than we expected, then actually we can walk away. So you sign sign the SBA, but you don't have to complete. Okay.
1: so it just really, it sounds like what you're seeing and obviously sample sizes are smallish as though, okay, obviously stock market drops 20 percent or whatever it is today. Um, That's going to change. Buyers and sellers' expectations, but it's not. It hasn't been a d- destroyer of deals in a sense. There's a things are still happening, but it's a conversation that's that's required.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, and then from from a debt perspective, I think it's actually quite a similar story. Um, you know, the the existing deals are sort of remaining on track. Again, you know, there is slightly more challenging from a process perspective, but you know, in my experience right now lenders certainly to the sort of stronger sponsors and stronger projects are, are trying to to carry on business as usual um you know where they've got credit approval um for a particular deal they're, they're trying to honor that credit approval and and not revisit credit uh, and and pricing for example uh in in the covid world um but you know if if things change within the process and they have to go back to credit then there is a the risk that, that the pricing might change so you know i think Whereas in a in a pre-COVID situation, you know, end of last year, beginning of this year, you know, there was quite a borrower friendly market. I think you know we're starting to see things hardening slightly in favour of lenders. Um, you know, now is certainly yeah. not not the time for borrowers to try and you know set a, a borrower friendly precedent anymore. You know, yeah. lenders will certainly push back against that. So I think it's, you know, people are just trying to be sensible and and carry on with the deals as as best they can. Um, You know, I think what will be challenging is what happens with the next wave of the deals. Um, And I think, you know, lenders are still keen to lend. So I think, you know, if they've got the right... um, uh, you know, assets to to lend to, they they'll still carry on. But you know, my my concern is the longer this goes on, the sort of the more challenging the next wave of assets will become.
1: Yeah, and is there on the debt side? Is there are you seeing? Do you envisage an increasing role for the multilateral? You know, the European Investment Bank, the the EBRD, in in deals? Do you think they see it as a, as having a role at this point to to help get things moving?
2: Not not yet, I don't think. Um, You know, I think if you know if the asset class is is still strong and robust, which it is, I, I don't think we will see a need for that. Um, so the longer it goes on, maybe that that is the case. Um, but yeah. but something I'm sort we're going to touch on shortly is is there is a the underlying issue in all of this is actually is the power price.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which is obviously heartening to hear uh, coming from the from the perspective that the power price actually matters for, for, for investments. Is uh, one one thing you talked about, you said what will be interesting will be the next wave of, of debt. Do you see pure equity transactions as as sort of returning? Yeah, you know, I know they're they're relatively uncommon in our sector. We had Richard Norse on recently who who says it's all it's all equity in the green Code portfolio? Do you see that being easier to come? Do you see a wave of that coming back before the 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 more leveraged um you know transactions?
2: I think it might. It, we might see that. You know, I think if, if you've got equity, you know, there are some opportunistic buyers out there who have got strong balance sheets who might look to you know buy things at perhaps a slightly cheaper price and then put leverage in later once the market settles down. I so, you know, think that, that we we might see a little bit of that. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay, and then do you see you you distinguish between debt and equity? You you distinguished, um, you sort of talked about the time time period. Is there a distinction between assets and PPAs? I I don't know to what extent you focus on one or one or the other. But you know, is it easier to assign a PPA than it is to acquire an asset at at the moment, or are you seeing things relatively equally
2: impacted? Well, I think I'd, I'd say they're pretty pretty equal. Um, I mean, I think when we start looking at PPAs, obviously, that the challenge now is is whether they're going to be fixed price or or you know, floating uh, merchant yeah. price PPAs, yeah. um, and that's where it, it becomes interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And with the with the oil price negative yesterday in Texas, um, the, you know, people probably charge a bit more for uh, for for guaranteeing price than they than they than they did three months ago. Um, okay, good. And are there any other are there any other legal terms that you see changing in the short run? You know, people are revisiting their force majeure clauses and and, and things like that. Um, or is it mainly those Mac Mac clauses
2: that you that you see potentially you know being being used more? Yeah, I mean, I think it. I mean, in a you know in a loan agreement or in an, an SPA, you're unlikely to see that much in the way of force majeure. Um, I mean, some some loan agreements will have force majeure provisions, so that you know, if there's extended force majeure affecting the site or the, the project, then that might trigger an event of default. Um, so you know, clearly, people are are looking at those clauses in more detail, um, because they now can really appreciate what what they actually mean and what the effect might be, and what the atten- what the intention is. Um, I mean, I think in in more commercial contracts, um, you know, definitely people are now very focused on, on false majeure clauses. Um, you know, and, and some clauses are, are narrowly drafted. Some clauses are, are more widely drafted. Um, you know, and, and obviously, as lawyers were being asked to, to look at those, both in terms of, of, of existing contracts yeah. and, and people looking to assess what their position is under them. And also, in, in respect of new contracts, people want to be very clear in, in how they're allocating the risk
1: so you've got a you've got a restructuring team at Ashurst. do you get any a sense of you know people who are in trouble in the market who perhaps had i suppose some power price exposure and 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 high leverage and these low gas prices are having an impact or is it too too early to tell
2: no i mean i think it it's a sort of distinguished between you know if if you had a um well i think we've got to distinguish between um, different technologies and obviously then different exposures to the, the power price or not. But, you know, I think if, if you have a, if you've got a strong asset or a portfolio of assets which were performing well, um, certainly to the extent that they had any um, fixed price uh, PPAs, uh, you know, they are pretty unaffected by by all of this and that, you know, they're carrying on Pretty much business as usual. I mean, if you think about a, a solar project, it doesn't really need that much in the way of operation and maintenance on site. Uh, and so it can you know, pretty much continue. Um, so, you know, those types of operating portfolios seem to be relatively, let's um, say, robust and, and not too impacted by this. Whereas, you know, if you've got um, you know, some projects which were perhaps performing slightly less well before COVID. Uh, came about then certainly now they are the ones that are really going to struggle um just because of them yeah. you know, i think the main point is the the lower power price um you know is, is definitely creating an issue for the, those those ppas with, with with merchant exposure um and then and again to, to distinguish the technologies um you know i think as i say wind and solar certainly operating wind and solar apart from the the power price seem to be you know, get able to carry on whereas when you start to look at things like energy from waste um or biomass projects then i think there's are certainly perhaps slightly more susceptible to to the impact of, of covid um i mean in particular with things like waste yeah, wood, um, yeah. where you know just as you know building sites etc have shut down the, the the amount of waste wood that's being generated is just not sufficient there to interesting to, to service those those plants. And so, you know, I think where you've got, you know, with fuel supply requirements, um, you know, certainly in the waste sector, then then that might come under pressure and, and those projects are perhaps going to suffer more.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting point. And often those are you know often those are not not fixed contracts or at least not long-term fixed contracts on the on 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 the inputs. Uh so uh yeah in, very interesting. Um okay can I shift from the from the transaction side of things to actually the kind of building building stuff side of things you're obviously the you know that i i don't think the i don't think the decarbonization agenda is has, has disappeared and it will probably re, re-emerge in, in the public's view uh, do you have a sense of from the legal perspective whether things are getting harder to to build you know planning approvals or you beyond the financing side of things um where have the impacts been
2: yeah, sure. I mean, I think when you when you think about planning, you've probably got three stages to to think about. One is the the, the sort of submission of the planning applications. Then you've got the the validation and processing of the application, and and um, and then you've got the actual implementation of the the existing consents. So I think with respect to the sort of the submission of development consent orders or or planning applications, then you know the, these applications are being delayed. Um, because this is where developers are finding it difficult to to get to site, um, you know, collate various environmental data, carry out surveys, etc. that they need to for for the application. Um, And also, I think that they're also finding it difficult to to carry on. What they have to do with the sort of pre-application community consultation. And I mean, there's, there's quite extensive um, consultation requirements for these, for, for a lot of these infrastructure applications. So that you know they're really struggling to do that. And so that's yeah, it must be impossible. I'm not, exactly imagine. right. So, yeah. so I think we're going to see a delay in new applications. Um, yeah. And then, in terms of the applications that have been submitted, well, some some councils are actually refusing to validate them um, because uh, some of the planning regimes have quite strict um, consultation requirements and statutory periods, etc. And so the councils are sort of refusing to validate the the, the applications because that will start the time limits, uh, which they know they can't adhere to. So. You know, think that that that's one challenge and and in fact the legal community is, is sort of lobbying to um to uh, the, the the planning inspectorate to start for the planning inspectorate to um actually hold hearings virtually yeah yeah
1: um and what about equipment uh, so we hear I, I mean so the 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 one anecdote I have is around you know the Australian industry slowing down quite a lot at the moment um and it's it's a consequence, actually, of the Aussie dollar having fallen, uh, and so a bunch of a bunch of projects which rely on a on a strong Aussie dollar are, are, are basically that might have gone ahead in the second half of the year won't is, is what I understand. Uh, is there anything on the sort of international trade side of things that you see slowing down? I know we're sort of veering slightly out of the legal domain, but but you know if you've got an OEM that's that the equipment provider that's based out of China for for solar or, so, or something like that, does it, does it or modules coming out of China? or something is is there is there an impact
2: there that you're observing at all well yes i mean i think and that goes to the point around the construction projects are going to be more challenged than operational projects um because of the you know the 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 challenges of getting equipment to site um you know and so i think when you when you look as you say of of solar panels coming out of china or indeed you know parts for wind turbines etc that need to be from around the world, um, you know, that that is where we're starting to see potentially some delays um, to these projects. Um, you know, and, and and that's where people are looking at sort of force majeure claims, etc. Um, and, and you've got to consider how you have this sort of knock-on effect because if you, if someone's claiming force majeure under your under your EPC contract, for example, because they can't get the equipment onto site or your turbine supply agreement, whatever it is. Um, um, does that have a knock on effect to your PPA? For example, you, know, you, you might have your your PPA might yeah. have a, a long stop date by which date you've got to start commercial operations. And if you don't, the, the PPA offtaker could could terminate or there might be some implications for that of having to pay some sort of liquidated damages or something to the offtaker for the delay in the startup. Um, mm. I mean, and, and actually, if you've got um, a subsidy, you know, for example, you know, there's your you know, for a CFD, for example, you obviously got your your um, window in which you've got to start commercial operation, and if you if you're not going to meet that window due to force majeure, you've got to start thinking about uh, making claims for that as well. So it does have a knock-on effect across the contractual suite.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds like it sounds very complicated. Uh, if if things are if things are slowed down substantially, I was going sort of lead to my next question, which is around. Yeah, I think some people who are, you know, very broadly speaking, there's a kind of conceptualization of, okay, maybe there's a three-month you know, depending how government exit these things, maybe there's a three-month lockdown, but also there's the possibility that um, it's just very hard to get out of this social distancing and working from home and it's more like a 12-month lockdown. If you think about those two things, what what's the diff? What do you think the difference is from a legal perspective? You know, is, it, is a twelve month lockdown four times as bad, or is it more than four times as bad? I note today in the FT that US firms, uh, law firms, are cutting their partner pay. I don't, I don't think that's happening in the UK yet, as I understand it. But um, yeah, what does twelve months look like for the legal profession compared to compared to three months?
2: Um, yeah. It's, it's- and I think the thing is, with the legal profession, obviously we're we're very much dependent on deal flow, right? I mean, I think, I mean, what 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 I have noticed is, from a, from a lawyer's perspective, if you've got a, a phone, a laptop, and a brain, you can you can pretty much work anywhere. Um, and you know, I think that you know we've we've seen quite a seamless transition to working from home. Um, you know, and okay, if that's for three months fine it's a blip 12 months okay yeah it does become more challenging just from a a working perspective but i think you know that then is the knock-on effect of of the deal flow and what that could mean um because you know transactional lawyers you can make money off of the transactions and when the transactions stop then that's the challenge i mean i think a lot of law firms are i think i say reasonably well hedged let's say across their business um, mm-hmm. Because they have got some counter cyclical departments, so obviously yeah. our you know our restructuring and insolvency group and our disputes group is are uh, they much busier right now? You know relative yeah. to you know, other times when you might say, well, look, it's the M A or the leverage finance guys that are, are busier. So you know, I think I think that's the the, the unknown. Um, I mean, I think interestingly, what I find from a, a projects perspective is that we are i think history has shown we're reasonably well insulated from big sort of macroeconomic shifts um because we're we're driven by the need to build infrastructure whether it's power roads or rail or whatever it is that's that's the that's the driver there not just Know, buying and selling things to make money you know there is a physical asset behind it and so generally the the projects teams uh, will will continue um, you know to and continue to be busy but you know a 12 month lockdown I think could have you know, quite far-reaching effects across the the legal industry um, and I mean in fact you I know, mean, it's, it's now reasonably well publicized that a number of, of UK law firms are also um, having to you know reduce partner pay, etc.
1: Yeah, yeah. And do you just a final thing on on the sort of at the act of being a lawyer? You talked about a phone, a laptop, a brain being enough. Do you think this will change the shift towards working from home within within the top law firms? Will it accelerate it? I mean presumably it's underway a little bit already, or 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 do you think the value of proximity and being in the office together is is something that's hard to hard to replicate at home perfectly?
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think I think there's a couple of points really there. Um I don't of all the people that I'm working with, I don't think anyone is saying, Oh, I love working from home. I might never go back to no, this. Yeah um you know i think you know, i think we we need that human interaction um to to be able to function i mean yeah. i think we if do. they open
1: the schools it might change things a little bit i think but <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no i, don't, I definitely take your point and i'm hearing the same things at aurora as well
2: yes but but then again you know i do think there is some Uh, dinosaurs in in the legal profession um whose view was if you're not in the office you're clearly not working um you know and i think obviously now we've got proof that that you can work very efficiently and effectively from home and so yeah the 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 need to always be in the office and to be seen to be in the office hopefully that that sort of myth will be dispelled and so there will be greater flexibility um but you know i I would think most people would say well look i'd really quite like to be in the office at least four days out of five um you know and, and perhaps we'll have one day where you're slightly more flexible so you, know, you can see how you know it might have a, a an impact in terms of people saying well look, if we expect you know at least every, one day a week where you're not in the office and by the way that can't always be a friday um you know then then actually you spread that out across the week then you could say well actually look we only need 80 percent of, of the office space perhaps um, but that, you know, that's got to be a more flexible way of, of working.
1: Okay, great. So that's the, that was a sort of short-term focus. I'd, I'd like to, to get onto the long-term focus. But before I do, I'd like to ask you a couple of overrated, underrated questions. Uh, Not really related to COVID-19, but just to get the legal perspective on some of these. Um, So I'm going to ask, I'm going to give you a concept and and you tell me if you think it's overrated in the, you know, in the energy community or if it's underrated in general. Uh, So the first one is uh, policy uncertainty to investors. You know, investors often say, I just need policy certainty. Uh, So do you think policy uncertainty as a concept for investors is overrated or underrated?
2: It's probably underrated and I think it's it's a very very important point I mean you saw the the issues in Italy and Spain when they had their retrospective tariff changes um and and actually in the u k more recently with with some of the changes that have been going on, so you know I think the need for policy certainty is is actually fundamental to a lot of investment
1: yeah yeah there certainly wouldn't be many uh Spanish wind investors from the you know from the 2006 2007 who would say that it is overrated. Uh for sure. Um great. Okay, so second concept. Um so th- this one is the role of corporate PPAs in developing power assets. Uh, do you think it's overrated or underrated?
2: That is a that's a tricky one. <laughs> um I, I think there's <laughs> Um, I, th- I think at the moment, I mean, well, let's distinguish, actually, I think, because if you look in, in Italy and Spain, and in fact, goes to what I just said, that that because they're to avoid the sort of policy uncertainties of exactly, the past, yeah. they are really looking at uh, corporate PPAs as the solution, you know, and, and subsidy free projects there, especially in the solar sector, um, are, are really forging ahead. Um, with, with corporate PPAs and, and that's a lot of it is because of, of their climatic conditions for solar are so much better than you've got in the UK so you can build a project for about the same amount and generate twice as much electricity there so yeah you know, you can, and, and, and there's you don't need the subsidy and you can rely on on that corporate PPA whereas I think in you know in in the UK um, we haven't we still haven't really seen that many corporate PPAs. Um, so I think in the UK you'd say it's more overrated. Actually, then you look at the Nordics, where obviously that's been a, a more sophisticated corporate PPA market. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's uh, very market dependent. I entirely entirely agree with you. Um, okay, excellent. So, the, the, uh, briefly, want to focus on the on the longer term as well. So, do you stepping again stepping back from the from the law for a second? Do you see this whole episode COVID nineteen as impacting the long-run decarbonisation trajectory of the economy? You know, is your view of where we'll be in 2030 changed, in terms of decarbonisation, changed as a consequence of the last three months?
2: I'm not not sure it has, actually. I mean, I think clearly right now there's been a a pause and a shift in focus away from the sort of energy transition and and decarbonisation because of the, the need to survive and mitigate the impacts of COVID. But, I mean, I think actually... You know, what, what this last three months has shown us is you know, how, for example, renewable electricity is, is, has been, de- as far as I'm aware, has been delivering sort of record levels over the last three months. Um,
1: yeah, as a prop- I mean, proportion exactly, you know, demands down and the renewables are generating the same the same amount.
2: Exactly. I mean, we're obviously having a lot of windy and sunny days right now. Um, in fact, I had, I've got this app on my phone. I can look at what the output is at any time. And I saw earlier early today it was almost sixty percent of electricity was being generated by wind and solar, um, with a little bit of biomass there. You know, which yeah. is really, quite incredible. So,
1: so, so overall, you know, maybe a blip if if you know if some of the things we talked about before come to come to eventuate. But in general, the trajectory is. Is un, un unchanged. Is um. It, would you say is it the same for Ashurst? Do you think Is is you know? Are you is your you, you've got a. I don't know if it's a renewables practice, but do you are you making the same investments now that you that you otherwise would you envisage the same growth
2: in that business over the next over the next few years? Well, yeah, I, I think the the growth will accelerate. Um, I mean, I think what, what this sort of the energy transition is showing is that that's going to start spreading out across more than just the renewables practice right because obviously I think you know, renewables has always been the sort of low-hanging fruit to decarbonize the economy um, and, and now the sort of when you look to the sort of electrification of, of transport that's the you know, that's the next challenge both in sort of you know cars and EVs but also you know, looking at electrification of the rail network and, and beyond. Um, you know, and suddenly you're starting to see, I mean, hydrogen now seems to be you know a new big focus and that's seen as the, the sort of bigger long-term solution rather than just sort of lithium batteries. Um, and so you know, I think people are generally starting to look at that more. Um, and obviously carbon capture and storage is also coming to the fore again a little bit more. So I think from a, an Ashurst perspective, you know, we're very much investing in in sort of low carbon. Um, we've we've just appointed a, a sustainability partner, um, Anna Marie Slot, who's focusing on the sort of Ashurst low carbon strategy, both uh, and sustainability. Oh, internally. Both, well, both internally mm-hmm. to look at what our sort of global carbon footprint is, you know, from from everything from our offices to business travel, etc. But also, you know, she's also looking at things like um, green bonds and green loans, and and how we can help our clients with with that side of things as well. Yeah. Okay.
1: And and on the on the legal side, you've talked a little bit about the, your continued focus within Ashurst. What what about like the role of the lawyer? Do you think the do you think do you see the role of the lawyer in the power sector, uh, and in particular in investment in, in- in, in lending changing as a consequence of
2: this um, um mm. no i mean i, I think we, we'll we'll carry on i mean i think you know when you say the role of a lawyer um it's a broad it's a broad term i i, mean, I, yeah. I admit I mean, there'll I still be you know, contracts yeah. <laughs> exactly i mean I, I think in terms of um what, what our roles are on transactions and and how we work i think as i say, generally will will stay the same um you know, I think generally perhaps as as um, the way in which transactions are run, but I think we might start seeing less in the way of face-to-face meetings, um, less in the way of, of sort of international business travel. I mean, that might be one of the, the outcomes from this, that, that generally people will think twice about whether they need to jump on a plane um, yeah. when actually you can have a, a video conference or something that's going to actually save you Hours and hours of of travel time when you can be you know, largely just as effective. Um, I always it's, it's quite interesting actually how there seems to be a big difference between the sort of leverage finance world and the project finance world. Um, and in the leverage finance world, they 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 often go the entire transaction without a single meeting um, and do everything on the phone and by email, including in, including the closings. Um, and yet in in project finance it seems actually people like to have at least one or two big meetings throughout the transaction where everyone sort of gets together to to thrash out the main commercial points and also have a physical closing where everyone shows up and they see a room set out with hundreds of documents and that sort of gives them the satisfaction that everything's yeah. in order and, and um, they're good to go. So there is a bit of a difference between... Um, industry, let's say, um, product, as to how they approach things, but certainly with the likes of, you know, electronic signatures and things, I, I do think we'll, we'll start perhaps having less physical meetings.
1: Yeah. And I mean, from my perspective, that's been one of the striking things I think is just how many more hours you have in a day when you, uh, if you're not, if you're not on aeroplanes, um, I, I, I still, you know, was paying the price for a while there of setting up a Sydney office at, at, at Aurora. <laughs> so, um, so that I, that wouldn't surprise me if the level of international travel particularly slowed, slowed down. Okay. Excellent. Well, we will find out anywhere over the, over the coming year. So, so uh, that's a good point to conclude. Um, so, so, Anthony, thanks so much for joining us, uh, taking the time out of your very busy schedule, sharing your expertise, and and and, and engaging in some of the more speculative questions as, as as well with a good spirit. So so many thanks for joining us, uh, and uh, and yeah, have 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 a good evening.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks very much.
0: That was John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, speaking to Anthony Skinner, partner in the projects practice at Ashurst. Thank you very much for listening and look out for other sessions to come in the Aurora COVID-19 series.